Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. If you're visiting with us for the first time, please, if you have questions about this faith or about this congregation, don't hesitate to ask the friendly people at the visitor table and they'll do their best to answer your questions. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. So it is in the spirit of that heritage, I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left, welcoming them here this morning. Will you say together with me the words by which we light our chalice, which is the symbol of our faith? In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship this morning was written by Annie Dillard. We are here to abet creation and to witness it, to notice each thing so each thing gets noticed. Together we notice not only each mountain shadow and each stone on the beach, we notice each other's beautiful face and complex nature so that creation need not play to an empty house. We have people in our congregation who have backgrounds, roots, and practices in all the major world religions, including secular humanism, mystic humanism, staunch atheism, neo-paganism. So with all of these different converging streams in our congregation, what is it that makes us one, that holds us together? One of the things we point to at the center of our community is our mission statement. And we wrote it on the wall, and we say it every Sunday together. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Reading was written by Sophia Lyon Foss. It matters what we believe. Some beliefs are like walled gardens. They encourage exclusiveness and the feeling of being especially privileged. Other beliefs are expansive and lead the way into wider and deeper sympathies. Some beliefs are divisive, separating the saved from the unsaved, friends from enemies. Other beliefs are bonds in a world community where sincere differences beautify the pattern. Some beliefs are rigid, like the body of death, impotent in a changing world. Other beliefs are pliable, like the young sapling, ever growing upward in the thrust of life. Now is the time in our service when we get quiet together in search of stillness. We breathe deeply. We ground ourselves by putting our feet on the floor, sinking into the pew. 
as we follow our breath, as it comes in and out of us, as we notice our thoughts and gently bring our attention back to our breath. We may find that there is a still place. We practice finding the stillness and sitting with it. It is in this place that the wisdom of the ages tells us we can find clarity. We can slow things down. We can notice the difference between what happens to us and the stories we tell about what happens. Let us enter the wise silence together. Today I'm starting a sermon series, which means I'll preach on this occasionally, um, called What's the Difference? And today we're doing What's the Difference Between Sunni and Shia Muslims? So I'm going to tell you the story of what started the split between the Sunni and the Shiites. Shiites, Shia, same thing. One is just anglicized and the other one is... Less so. Muhammad was born in the year 570 in what is now Mecca. His dad died six months before he was born, and his mama died when he was six years old. So he was raised by his grandfather for two years, then his grandfather died, and then he was put with an uncle. This was a prestigious, wealthy merchant family that he was part of. So he was raised to be a merchant, and he was taught the elements of business. He married a 40-year-old widow, and they had children. Um, He used to go to the mountains on retreat once a year to a cave to meditate, and the angel Gabriel started to talk to him while he was up there. He memorized the things that the angel Gabriel told him, and then he told a few people who began to follow him to hear what the angel Gabriel was saying to him. And his followers wrote these sayings down that he had memorized from Gabriel. And that is what became the Quran. The main thing that Gabriel had to say was that there was just one God. The surrounding culture of Muhammad in what is now Saudi Arabia was uh, that every stream, every hill, every tree, every rock had a spirit. And so that, that religion is called animism, but some people call it polytheism. Um, so when Muhammad, three years later, began to preach in public about there being one God, it wouldn't have been as big a deal, but what he preached also was that if you had any other gods... And if you had little statues of them, or if you went to the rock to worship them, uh, that your statues had to be destroyed, and that you had to be destroyed if you were um, worshiping wrong. And um, this caused some upset. Uh, 
Muhammad's followers began to be killed by the people of Mecca who didn't want to have their idols or their gods, depending on your perspective, um, disrespected. Muhammad was not killed because he had the privilege of being rich and being from a good family. Um, When things got too bad, Muhammad took his wife and children. He only had one child who lived to adulthood, but at this point he had more. Um, He took his wife and children and fled to a town called Medina, which was not very far away from Mecca, and he set up his household in Medina. This fleeing from Mecca to Medina was called the Hajira, and it's uh, celebrated with rituals every first day of the Muslim year. So in Medina, Muhammad continued to preach that there was one God and that all other gods were false and idols and should be destroyed. And there was still some hostility, but his followers were more were kind of like an army that he was in charge of. And so they were getting more and more and better and better at being at defending themselves. The people in Mecca still were angry, and um, I'm sure there were many issues that uh, I did not read about this week because it doesn't make all that much sense to me why they would try to kill each other, but I guess they can kill each other over hats, although that's not a historical story. <laughs> Just BTW. Um, anyway, soon Muhammad's followers numbered 10,000, and they... Um, uh, at, and they went to Mecca and conquered Mecca for good. And so they had no more trouble from Mecca. And by the time he had 10,000 followers, Islam had spread throughout the whole Arabian Peninsula. Now, again, perspectives differ on how it spread. Um, they did not really go door to door, two by two, knocking and giving pamphlets. Uh, the... The accounts of how they converted other people sound less like people were converted by the good ideas and more like people were converted kind of by threats and uh, at the point of a sword. But you cannot trust your sources on this kind of thing. And I'm sure many people were converted by the good ideas of Islam and some people were converted by overzealous followers who... um, who said, your life will not be worth living if you don't convert. So, by the time Muhammad died in the year 632, Islam had spread pretty far. The problem with Muhammad dying was that he had not appointed a successor. And his followers split into two groups. The majority felt that the person to have the authority in the religion should um, be chosen by the elite of that religion. Kind of like when there needs to be a new pope. The cardinals all gather in Rome and they talk together and they vote um, until there's a new pope. So the elite of the religion choose the person who's going to hold the authority of the religion. So the largest group felt that the elite of the, of the religion should, should choose 
the person who was going to carry the authority of the religion, called the caliph. And uh, the minority, the smaller group, thought that really God should choose who was going to hold the authority for the religion. And that the way God would choose that next person was that the person would be related to the prophet. Would be that, it would, that, that God would have put that person in the family of the prophet. And since the only adult child who had lived was his daughter, Fatima, and they couldn't really see having a daughter, oh my goodness, Madam President, that would not work. Um, so they wanted the husband of Fatima to be the head of it because he was also the cousin of Muhammad. And so that way it's in the family. Um, guess who won? The bigger group. So the bigger group uh, got the guy who was um, the, the elected guy of the elite of the group. So that authority should be chosen by the elite. That was the larger group. And they chose, the elite chose. Um, they wanted... Oh, gosh, I've gotten you mixed up already. I spent all week telling myself this story again and again because it's so confusing. Sorry. Okay, so the larger group. (laughs) The larger group, the ones that wanted the elite to vote, they voted on uh, the father of one of Muhammad's wives. So father, his name was Abu Bakr. You hear that name in the, in the news. Abu Bakr was the one they wanted to vote on. The smaller group wanted it to be in the family. I told you right there. They wanted the guy who was the white, the husband of Fatima. All right. So the bigger group won, and Abu Bakr became the caliph. The husband of Fatima's name was Ali. Ali watched from the sidelines. And everybody who wanted Ali in the smaller group This happens when you vote. The losers, the minority, they seethe and simmer. So they just seethed and simmered while Abu Bakr was the elected caliph. And Abu Bakr was the elected caliph for just a few years, and he got sick and died. But he he learned from Muhammad, and before he died, he appointed not only his successor, but the successor of that guy. So he appointed the next two successors. So when his so the second caliph, the one he appointed, also approved by the majority group, disapproved by the minority group who still wanted Ali, the second guy uh, conquered more territory, including Persia, which is what we call Iran and Iraq, um, including Persia, until he was assassinated by some Persians that he had just conquered. So then the appointee number two comes into play. Nobody had to fight over that because the first caliph had appointed number two and number three. So caliph number three was there, and he ruled for ten years before um, he was assassinated. So the first three caliphs, Abu, the elected guy, and the two guys that he appointed, they ruled for 25 years or so after the death of Muhammad. So then after he got assassinated, everybody thought 
it's Ali's turn. So that could have made it peaceful, right? So the guy that the minority group wanted, who was the husband of Fatima, and the guy the majority group wanted, the husband of Fatima, he became um, the caliph. And everybody was happy for five years. He died, but he appointed his son, whose name was Hassan, to be the fifth caliph. The big majority group was not happy with that. So they overthrew Hassan. Now you have a split. The minority group still going with Hassan, well, the son of Hassan, whose name was Hussein. So they're following Hussein, son of Hassan, and these guys are following the rebel guy who overthrew Hassan. All right, these are the majority guys following the rebel guy. These are the minority guys following the sons of Ali. They think that Ali was the first caliph, but they call him the imam instead. So they, only, they feel like they've had three real imams. Ali, Hassan, his son, Hussein, his son. These are the three pure imams that God gave the authority to by putting them in the family. The other guys have the not pure imams, according to these guys. So their authority is null and void. And they never, this all happened in the 7th century, they never have been friendly since. The larger group that thought the elite should elect and call it the caliph, those are the Sunni Muslims. The smaller group that felt like God gave the authority to the people in the family line, those are the Shia Muslims. And so they each feel that the others are following false practice. Now, this is important because, uh, number one, because they still haven't stopped fighting. Um, part of the reason why they're fighting is that uh, two uh, gentlemen with no standing in the fight after World War II, an English gentleman and a French gentleman, got together with a map, a bottle of whiskey, and a pencil, and... Uh, drew the borders for Iraq. And famously, one of them says, I think we should uh, draw the border from this E in the town of Accra to the K in the town of Kirkuk. That looks like a good border, but okay. But real borders are squiggly, not straight. Real borders follow mountains or rivers, some kind of natural divide. You don't just put warring people on the same land and say, oh, it'll work out from thousands of miles away where you are in France with a bottle of whiskey and a pencil. But colonial Europeans did this all the time, and they've caused a lot of wars. Um, so anyway, um, it's also important because ISIS is a Sunni group. And so ISIS is supported by Saudi Arabia, which is a Sunni-run country. They're even the fundamentalist Sunnis, because within Sunni and Shia, there are wide varieties from fundamentalist 
to mystical, to kind of secular. But the ones who run Saudi Arabia, our buddies, our allies because of the oil, are fundamentalist Sunni Muslims called Wahhabi. They are supporting ISIS, fundamentalist Sunni Muslims. Iran, while it has Sunni people in it, is run by a Shia power structure. So the Sunnis suffer in Iran. The Shia suffer in Saudi Arabia. Iraq had both two. Uh, Their last dictator, Saddam Hussein, was in the Ba'ath Party, which is a Sunni party. And so the Shia were a minority who were suffering in Iraq as well. Okay, and this division matters a lot to the people like the red hat, blue hat people, and like the Sophia Fah's reading where it says some beliefs cause divisiveness. Some are rigid as the body of death. If you have a belief that demands purity, then you try to get rid of impurity in yourself and in others. If purity is a big deal, you're always going to be at war. Purity is impossible, number one. You're always going to be at war. Okay. Your authority is important because who is going to tell you what God thinks about how you live, how you eat, how you sleep, how you pray, how you marry, how you die, how you raise your children? These are of paramount importance to human beings. How do I do this? And if you're a purity person, you want to know, how do I do this absolutely correctly? And so the authority who tells you how to do it is very important to you. If you're a Roman Catholic and you really believe the authority of the Pope, you're probably going to try to do what the Pope says. If you're a Sunni Muslim, you really want to do what the people who were, um, who came down from Abu Bakr say to do, the caliphs. If you're a Shia Muslim, you want to do what Ali and Hassan and Hussein and all of their family descendants said to do. By the way, their family descendants were traced to, then there was this boy who was supposed to be the next one, but he disappeared. So the the people there are waiting for him to come back, waiting for him to return as kind of a messiah. But I don't have time to tell you about all that. So it seems petty. Uh, It seems petty. Like, why are you killing each other over whether you follow Abu or Ali? But it's not really petty because it's why you're killing each other because you're, you're concerned about purity. And these people are impure because they're following someone who has a fake authority. So you're not doing death right, you're not doing life right, you're not praying correctly, you're not raising your children correctly, you're not governing your country correctly, you're not spending money correctly. You are apostate, you're an infidel, and you need to be stamped out so we can have purity. And once we have purity, we can have peace. I'm going to stop here for a minute and bring it back to us. The Sunnis and the Shia are living in a polarized society, have been for 1,300 years. Our society is getting pretty polarized. 
much more than it used to be. We've only been going, by we, I mean people in the United States, for 200 years. Given another 1,300, if we don't do things better, we're going to have, um, you know, Republican names and Democrat names. We're going to have Republican villages and Democratic villages. We kind of already do. We're going to be telling terrible stories about each other, and who knows whether we'll be, you know, beheading each other. I hope not. But the latest studies are showing that 33% of Democrats would be really disappointed if a child married a Republican. And 49% of Republicans would be really disappointed if their child married a Democrat. This is way up from 1980, where it was just like 5%, 5%. We're getting, we're getting more polarized. Why is that? Well, there are lots of reasons. One of the reasons is that in 1987, President Reagan deregulated the Federal Communications Commission, giving, uh, scotching the uh, fairness doctrine, and now there can be red stations and blue stations. So people listen to their own tribe's station. So you got red facts and blue facts. Everybody thinks the other people are insane because we don't have the same facts or they're not emphasized in the same way. We tell each other different stories about what happens. So we, we almost see each other as dangerously crazy. This is not just among Democrats, Democrats and Republicans. This is also within, um, within any movement, within any social movement. You're going to have the purists and the um, compromisers. You're going to have, within Black Lives Matter movement, you're going to have people fighting. Within the Green movement, you're going to have people fighting. Within the Peace movement, you're going to have people fighting. I'm telling you the truth, aren't I? Within the GLBT movement, you have people fighting. Everybody in their own movement starts craving purity or certainty. Because as human beings, we have a lust for certainty. It's very uncomfortable to remain uncertain. And not just uncomfortable within yourself. You're uncomfortable in front of other people because people look at you if you're uncertain and they go... Oh, you're so wishy-washy. You're so weak. What, you want diplomacy? That's not strong. That's not decisive. We want strong and decisive. Which brings me to the very famous essay by a philosopher, Isaiah Berlin, called The Hedgehog and the Fox. You all studied it in college. The hedgehog, it says, he's quoting a Greek philosopher, the hedgehog knows one thing well, and the fox knows many things. Two different styles of looking at things. One is not bad and one is not good. There is helpful stuff and useless stuff about each type of way of approaching the world. Are you hardwired to be a fox or a hedgehog? I don't know. Can you learn to be one or the other? I don't know. But hedgehog example would be, I think everything in the world is about love. So I take love and I'm going to put that as a measure next to all my decisions. Is it loving? Lovely. That's a hedgehog view. I think the world is about power, power relationships, says psychologist Adler. Um, everything is about power, and so I'm going to see everything through the lens of who's got power, who's looking for power, who's losing power, who's getting more power, who's losing power, etc. 
Freud. I think everything is about sex. You get a certain lens, and you can make it fit. Everything is about class struggle. Mother Jones famously was against women's suffrage or against working for women's suffrage because it distracted from the class struggle. The early suffragists were derailed or asked to abandon their suffrage work by the abolitionists who said, look, this is more urgent. This is more important. Stop working for women's vote. We've got people who are owned by other people. Yuck. In our culture, we have to get rid of that. So these are all one-issue things. And the fox is a person who goes, well, all of these things are important. I need to learn a little bit about all of them. I need to know a lot of things. I'm going to have a lens which can switch. Does that make you weak? Does that make you indecisive? Maybe. So while Isaiah Berlin divides people into two groups, the hedgehogs and the foxes, I divide people into two groups too. People who divide people into two groups and people who don't. (laughs) There are fox people and hedgehog people in the Sunni group and in the Shia group, of course. It seems like ISIS is attracting a lot of hedgehog thinkers that if this one thing, we're going to make the caliphate happen again, and if you don't, if you're not with us, you're against us. And if you're against us, you need to die. And so they'll stop trucks, and they have questions that they ask people who are in the trucks and buses and groups of people that they stop to figure out whether they're Shia or Sunni. Of course, everybody's going to try to pretend to be Sunni, because if you're Shia, you get killed. But they'll say, what's your name? They'll look at your ID. Because if your name is Hassan or Hussein, you're probably in the Shia group. If you slip and say the word imam, you're probably in the Shia group. If you say the word caliph, if your name is Abu Bakr, for example, probably in the Sunni group. They have Sunni villages and Shia villages, so they also say, look at where you're from. They pray differently. Sunnis put their arms over their chest like this. Shias extend their arms and touch their thighs. How do you pray, they'll ask. People study up how to pray like a Sunni because you want to stay alive. It's not important because if you put your hands on your thighs, uh, you're dangerous, but it's important because if you put your hands on your thighs, you get your authority from a false source You are messing up, muddying up the world when you try to teach how to pray, how to live, how to die, how to raise your children, how to behave in the world, and you need to go. And now, we've got Saudi Arabia helping the Sunni ISIS. We've got Iran, the Shiite country, fighting ISIS because they don't like the Sunnis. You've got Saudi Arabia just recently beheading Uh, Shiite cleric. So really, Iran and Saudi Arabia are fighting in the Middle East, in uh, Syria. And we are just kind of naively flailing around, uh, trying not to mention that our allies, our buddies, Saudis, are helping the the Sunni Shias, the Sunni uh, ISIS people, and trying not to mention that our 
the allies that were horrified about getting a bomb, Iran, are we're now helping them because the Shias are being creamed in Syria. It's a very messy situation. And why are we involved? Because beheadings. We can't stand it. We can't stand to see what's happening. We, we have a big heart as a country and a big military. And we are too young a country to, to believe that diplomacy is as strong or stronger than, than a war. So, this is the start of the What's the Difference series. We might talk about any number of things. If you have things you'd like to know about, um, make a suggestion to me. For us, our place of authority, for Unitarian Universalists, our place of authority is in the individual and in the community. You can watch it happening. People listen to something and they go, I feel that's true. And for us, that's enough. Unless you feel it's true that, like uh, my friend's Aunt Maybelle, uh, she felt it was true that Jesus was coming back to marry her. And so she killed her husband. So she'd be ready. Um, So it's not just the individuals feeling that it's true. It's also the community saying to you, "Mm, I think you might need to have another feeling about that. So we're, we're a free and responsible search for truth. That means individual and community. That's where our authority lies, in the individual, in relationship to the community. Got it? For Christians of all stripes... Um, authority is in the Bible. For Protestants, it's only in the Bible. For Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, um, Anglican, Episcopalian, the authority is in the Bible and in church tradition, in the church leadership, equal, e- even Stephen. So we're going to talk about that. What's the difference between Methodists and Lutherans? What's the difference between Episcopalians and Presbyterians? We're going to talk some about the differences in other ways too, but I think you all need to know, just as a matter of interest in American culture, what, um, what some of those differences are. And so we liberals, we have the same lust for certainty everybody else does. We want to know, what's greener? Which light bulbs are greener? <laughs> are, is it the spiral ones? They don't last as long as they say they're going to last. And it's hard to recycle them. Um, Should we use paper plates or should we wash real dishes? Some people will fight over that. Let's let's not use paper, but, you know, then if you use real dishes, you have to heat up all that water, you have to use all that soap, all that grease goes into the river. So what are we going to do? What we're going to do is stay humble, my friends. What we're going to do is... Put a red flag inside your mind for when that flush of self-righteousness comes through. Because when you feel that self-righteousness rise, you know you're about to behave badly. And you need to start one out of every seven sentences with the words, I could be wrong. Will you say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts 
until we are together again. The lone wild bird in lofty flight is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight, and I am thine, I rest in thee. Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.